You are listening to The Dr. Kinney Show, and I'm your host, Erin Kinney, a naturopathic doctor and speaker who's passionate about teaching you how to understand what is happening in your body, why your body is reacting the way it is, and how to make the appropriate changes in your life to get your body back into balance. Something I've learned from my private practice is that the more patients know about their health, the more likely they are to make better diet and lifestyle choices, which ultimately leads them to a faster recovery. Each week, you are going to learn actionable tips, tricks, and teachings from myself, along with the help of top experts in the holistic health community, so that you can make better informed decisions about your body and your healthcare. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am so pleased to have one of my favorite naturopathic doctors, a personal mentor, and probably the smartest man I've ever met, Dr. Peter Diadamo, author of Eat Right for Your Blood Type, creator of Opus 23, and a whole bunch of other things that we'll probably chat about today. And before I get into this episode, I wanted to tell you guys a little bit of a story about my first day in clinic as a naturopathic doctor. I was a third year. And I was on a shift with Dr. Peter Diadamo. And my fourth year, who was supposed to be taking the case, did not show up that day. So I had to go and take the case of the patient. It was a very complex patient. She had multiple chief complaints. She was on a lot of different medications. And I was extremely overwhelmed. I took the case. I brought it to Dr. Diadamo. What do I do? And he goes, Aaron, or Dr. Kinney, or whatever you called me at that time, probably Aaron. And he said, the more complex the case the more you should focus on the basics. And I just wanted to open this chat today with that idea and that times where things seem very overcomplicated and we want to think about the complexities of things that sometimes in order to get the answer, we need to go back to the basics. So with that, Peter, thank you so much for being here. And I'm sure you've had something to say about that. I think simplicity in most things is is a pretty good rule of thumb. Yeah. Um, I always used to uh, gauge how close I was to the truth by just asking myself how closely it approximated basic common sense. Mm-hmm. And if it was commonsensical, then I knew I was getting closer to what the reality was because nature yeah. is a nature is is by na- uh, by by definition a kind of a a simplicity seeking machine. You know, we say yeah. Occam's razor. Remember that. Yeah, you know, the yeah. most simple explanation is the one that's probably best suited. Yes. And we have lots of people who come in in our type of work with um, multiple symptoms and multiple things that are going on. A lot of times they, they don't fall conveniently into a pathology book. You know, it isn't yeah. like you can, here's the diagnostic code for the 12 things you have uh, yeah, that exactly. I've never heard of. So simplicity is is generally a good rule of thumb. There's actually... An interesting story about that, and if I can just take a moment, it's called the uh, the less is more heuristic. And yeah. heuristic is a rule of thumb, basically. It's like saying, you know, it's the rule that works most of the time, but it's far okay. from perfect. They gave American students and German students a geography quiz, and they asked the students, what was the bigger town, uh, San Jose or San Diego? And the American students pretty much were 50% right, 50% wrong. And uh-huh. the German students were 100% right that San Diego was the bigger town. And they tried to figure out why the German students were so much better at geography. And it turned out that actually they weren't any better in geography. They had all concluded that they had never heard of San Jose. So it must mean that San Diego is the bigger city. So yeah. sometimes actually information vacuums tend to make us better at guessing things. Yeah. And sometimes being simple is, you know, the, the reality is that the other thing I always like to keep in mind when I treat people with complex issues 
is uh, how is the how are we going to get to the quickest path that they're going to be able to sort this out themselves? Yes. You know, yes. most most systems will sort themselves out if given the right opportunities. So yeah, which is exactly right. I think I think so many people that have and a lot of my patients come in and they've not been given a diagnosis because they have so many things going on and they get to Googling and they're Googling you know, and they find out so much information and they get information overload. What do I eat? What do I do? What do I take? And that puts their system into the state of stress. And then it's almost like they get this overwhelm and they don't know what to do. So then they end up in my office or your office. And, and I find oftentimes I use that piece of advice that you gave me. You know, I think about that every day. Okay. There's a lot of things going on, but let's go back to your basics. What, how, what are, what are you eating every day? How are your bowel movements? What's your sleep? What, you know, the simple things about our body, there may be crazy things going on, but we need to remember that, you know, the simple basic things that we do every day are the things that are going to get us better. We talked earlier about uh, my infatuation with restoring very old moth-eaten cars. Um, yes. And it's interesting because, you know, the, um, I mostly work with old air-cooled Volkswagen, so most hippies would know those as the famous Beetle or the van, the bus. But it's funny because to get a 30 or 40-year-old engine that hasn't run in 25, 30 years to go is a series of essentially making sure that the individual parts that are needed for the engine to sustain itself are in place. Does it have yeah. compression? Is there a spark? Is there fuel? Is there a vacuum? You know, all these things are just part of the process, but actually until each one of those things is within its own operating range, the bigger picture doesn't occur. The engine doesn't fire, but as each yeah. one of those things gets within its operating range, you get closer to be able to get the engine to fire and then to idle. And once it idles, you can go in with the screwdriver and adjust things and kind of fine tune it. Yeah. And people are, are like the engines. <laughs> they, you, you, just, you try to get the various systems within their operating uh, framework, within their operating range. And then the bigger picture starts to assert itself. Which is, and I think that's how naturopathic doctors are trained. We're trained to look at each, or look at the body as a whole, but to look at each system and try to rebalance each system. And yeah, sometimes absolutely. when patients come to us, all of their systems are not firing. They're, like, they're not working. They're not going. They're a 25-year-old engine that can't go anywhere. <laughs> they can't get. Then they got multiple things wrong. Yes. And the only way to approach it is to just simply go one thing at a time and to just yes. rule that out or get that thing fixed. And, you know, ultimately, I think with most people, it's a very intuitive process that they feel that this is what they're looking for because the standard healthcare system basically is, is a tendency to reduce things to what can be managed inside that time frame, 15 minutes or 10 minutes or a half hour. Yeah. And, you know, we have all the time in the world. I mean, I mean, especially as, you know, I mean, if you're a young doctor in practice, you have a lot of time. And then when you get to be old like me, you have a lot of time. So you know, I can listen to people, you know, just, you know, you know, I'm in no hurry to get, you know, let's get yeah. it out and talk about it and stuff. And the reality is, is that uh, I'm in far less of a hurry now as I've gotten into my more advanced years of practice, I tend to take a lot more time to think. I might sit with a patient for an hour and, and then, you know, there's the expectation that I'm going to kick out some kind of protocol or something. So, you know, I like to think about this for a week. Let it roll around in my subconscious and nobody ever says, oh, I need to have that answer now. I mean, the idea that somebody could actually think about them in their spare yeah. time is attractive to people. And I do. Absolutely. I mean, I think about my patients. I could be, I used to tell my wife, I used to put up sheetrock and every time I hit a nail, I saw a patient's head, <laughs> you know, boom, you know, and, and, and some of my best thoughts came way after, you know, oh. I mean, so the whole performance thing is like, yeah. and that's really one of the problems I think with the conventional medical paradigm, it's all about getting it all in 
yeah. under the under the deadline. And and yeah. sometimes you just need to be able to stop and think and try to come up with an approach. And then the other thing we like to do, and I think this is what probably got me on your program, is that we like to personalize things. We like to oh, make things specific definitely. to the person. Can we talk a little bit about some of the basics for each blood type? A lot of my listeners are fans of the blood type or maybe are just kind of getting to know it. So can we just go over a few things? What are your favorite? I know we don't have blanket recommendations, but your favorite basics for type O, type A, A, B, B. I have sure. mine, but I'd love to hear how yours. About a, how about a little, a little prehistory in that ultimately this is right. an idea that goes back to my father yeah. who actually had the paradigm shift that basically brought that thing into focus one day. He simply asked the question, is there a way I can understand why some people do better on certain types of diets and other people don't? This is a battle that's being fought still to this day between proponents of these kind of universal type diets like paleolithic yeah. diets or vegan diets. And oh, yet yeah. the evidence suggests that actually these diets don't have any sort of universal success. There's always going to be outliers. So he had a very simple thought, which is, well, I mean, blood type is basically something that I can do in my clinic. It's a very simple test. And let me see if I can make some observances. He had studied in Norway and some of the naturopaths in Norway and Germany had actually looked at this as well. So when I was in school, I thought this was crazy because every, everything I had thought, taught about blood type had no way prepared me for the notion that it would have any effect on your diet or your digestion. Yeah. And blood type was something that messed up transfusions. So that's what I was taught. But then I decided, well, let me give this a fair run. So I went into the library and kind of did all the studies, pulled up the articles that I could on anything that had to do with blood type that didn't involve transfusions. And it turned out that there was a lot of things that condition your digestive tract that you can predict by knowing blood type from the levels of acid in your stomach to the levels of enzymes in your intestines to the bacteria that make up your microbiome to the way your immune system handles things that are part of its encounter with the environment to your blood clotting abilities. And so I was, I was like amazed. And so that became a process that I started looking at. And then, you know, here we are, we, we now looking at the age of personalized medicine and nutritional genomics and all sorts of things that we can do with very powerful genetic tools. And yet the simple blood type is by far the most basic, probably ubiquitous way that you can make a determination about somebody because it's a very powerful gene. It controls, yeah. I'll, 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 put, I'll put it to your listeners like this. If you put the wrong blood type in somebody, they die. So no, that kind totally. of tells you right then and there, you're dealing with something pretty powerful. Yeah. Um, now to go to the sort of the thumbnail sketch part is easy enough. I mean, you know, we, we first let's talk numbers. If you look at blood type O and blood type A, you wind up with just about 85% of the population. So almost everything sort of pivots off of those two blood types. They got type O, who's your basic low carb, high protein type person, not too problematic with things like certain good fats and stuff, prone to inflammatory autoimmune problems, prone to problems with uh, insulin kind of issues, prone to certain types of stress disorders, 45% of the population. Then you got 40% of the population, and this varies a little bit depending upon what we are in the world we're talking yeah. Uh, but 40% of the population is type A. And these are really people who have capacities that are more engineered for more plant-based type diet or more Mediterranean type diet, mm -hmm. more diet that's less the sort of hunter-gatherer type caveman diet where you require certain things for that. You know, you require certain digestive enzymes, a reasonable amount of mm -hmm. acid in your stomach, and you have enzymes that break fat down and break cholesterol down. These are all found in abundance in people who are type O. Type A, on the, hand, on the other hand, lacks most of these. 
So typically, if you were to go into the medical databases and look and see who basically suffers from the so-called diseases of Western civilization, they always have very high occurrences in type A because the standard American high fat diet, high meat diet is generally engineered to give them cardiovascular and cancer consequences. So here's the sign in the road. Here's the bifurcation. (laughs) Here's the fork in the road. You type O, you go this way, type A, you go that way which leaves about, what, 15% of the population, mm-hmm. 11% of mostly B. And they're not so easy to categorize because they fall sort of in between the fork and the road where mm-hmm. things are not true or false in any exclusive sense of the word. Certain mm-hmm. foods are good, certain foods are bad. Yeah. And a lot of this has to do with the actual molecular structure of their blood type. Mm-hmm. And indeed, this actually is a lesson that is uh, good and appropriate to all the blood types. There are things in our diet that are actually proteins that can act like little pieces of Velcro, and they're called lectins. And, and lectins are, they're, they're like proteins that cause things to clump up. They're probably part of how a plant defends itself. So ultimately, if you look at most of our diet being things like seeds and embryos, you know, most of these embryos need some protection until they can germinate. So the nature gives them, can't give them a whole immune system. So it yeah. gives them these proteins that act a little bit like antibodies. Well, those react with us. And many of those proteins, those lectins are specific to one blood type or another, which brings up the blood type B dilemma. And I said before, it's not an easy diet to quantify because it's idiosyncratic. And the perfect example is a, a food like turkey versus chicken. Turkey doesn't seem to cause any problems with blood type B, but chicken causes agglutination. Now, most people would say these are pretty similar foods. I mean, you would look at a macronutrient basis. They're not that dissimilar. So how can you make that distinction? Well, it turns out that chicken contains an agglutinin, a naturally occurring lectin, that causes an agglutination reaction with type B. And when these agglutination reactions occur in the gut, they can stimulate inflammatory changes. They can act to sort of drill holes in your intestinal lining and allow penetration of other molecules, which sort of feeds an allergic process. There's all sorts of things that you don't want to have to have to deal with if you can avoid it. And it's in a testimony to our great strength of our digestive tract that we can eat a lot of these things over time and not really pay the price, but the aggregate effect is to cause compromise with livers and kidneys and mm-hmm. things like that. So why not learn a little bit about the foods that if you just kind of try to overall steer clear of, yeah. you'll actually decrease the overall stress on your body. So with type A, it's mostly going to be things like plant protein, soy, which is kind of a universally kind of, I don't know, almost vilified food. Yeah, Yeah. which is kind of silly because if you look at the medical literature and you put in, you know, the studies that have been done on plants and their effect on health, the soy isoflavones are the most studied compounds in in, in medicine in terms of natural products. And they, they have all sorts of wonderful effects. Great for type A because it tends to have some benefits in terms of minimizing their risk for certain cancers. It has nice effects mm-hmm. on the arteries. Generally, you want to use the more fermented forms, that's for sure. Yeah. Type O, on the other hand, more great with meats, but should be real careful about using agribusiness meats. Yeah. They're not so hot. You want to use yeah. the sort of free-range, grass-fed, organic. And generally, the thing that's going to get you in trouble if you're type O are going to be grains like wheat, corn, and stuff, because that's yeah. going to play up the inflammatory thing. And bees, on the other hand, you know, a little bit better, 
uh, optimized for dairy, not so good with certain things like certain types of fish are not good. Certain types of poultry like chicken are no good. They don't do well on corn. Corn. Um, and then you have like 1% of the population, which is blood type AB. And that's kind of like this weird agglomerate of the characteristics of A and B. However, by, by being given both blood types, they're actually given an advantage in terms of being a slightly bit more tolerant of things. Yeah. Because we have to remember that you're not only just your blood type. For instance, my blood type is A, which means that I have an A chemical that is on my red blood cells in my digestive tract, but I have antibodies against B. So in other words, your blood type is not just who you are. It's who you are opposed to attack or be against. For instance, if your blood type O, you have antibodies against A and B. And if your blood type B, you have antibodies against A. So it's a whole kind of like constellation of who loves who and who hates who and who puts up with this. A B loves they, everybody. Well, they're the universal receiver when it comes yep. to transfusions. They just love everybody. On the other hand, type O is universal donor. They can give their blood to anybody because they don't have a, a marker that signifies them as being special. Mm -hmm. Type O, people don't realize this. The reason it was called type O is that originally in Germany, it was called type zero. Because ah, there is nothing that makes you an O. You're, you're, you're yeah. an O by, by having the absence. By of having no flags, yeah. Right. But you have antibodies against both other blood types, which means that you yeah. cannot receive anything but from an O. But everybody loves. That's why when the blood banks get short, they always issue calls for type O. Yeah. And there's all sorts of other things. There's links to genetic links with physiology. There's links to stress reactions. For instance, even with our COVID epidemic, there's innumerable studies now that show that there's significant links between uh, having blood type A and being more at risk for severe COVID syndromes, symptoms. Yeah. And that's actually kind of, it's not Why unique. Do you think that because is? is it the thickness of the type A blood? It's actually, yeah, the coagulation capacities. Yeah. Huh. Uh, there's a couple of things. It turns out that uh, blood type A has been known since the seventies tends to have a more clotty blood. So for instance, uh, and that's because they have higher levels of a chemical called factor eight. And most conventional doctors know absolutely nothing about blood type other than what they were taught about transfusions. But most hematologists do know that people who are type A have 30% higher levels of factor eight, even when they're normal, normal subjects, nothing wrong with them. Their level of this clotting factor is 30% higher than average. And so there's all sorts of studies that have been done that shown that, for instance, in type A, under stress, with diabetes, with sleep disturbance, with cancer, their blood gets very, very, very viscous, very, very thick. And COVID actually gets its nastiness from an interplay between the platelets and the serotonin that's in the respiratory tract. And much of this is under the, under the influence of these clotting factors. So type A, and actually most infectious diseases actually have a preference for one blood type, type or A's. another because, you know, well, actually some of them- Oh, some like of them cholera. are, yeah. Yeah, cholera likes to kill type O. Ah. Um, and the reason for that is nature probably persisted in allowing us to have these different blood types as sort of a, a bet hedge that if there's a pandemic of some form, one variation of these four immune systems is going to be resistant if the others are susceptible. So it's like a survival strategy. Because ultimately, it's hard to imagine why 
these blood types persisted over the years, but they do. And they still have tremendous capacity as far as what we learned just in this most recent COVID thing. But I've been studying blood types for the better part of three decades. And I'm constantly amazed by the stuff that just keeps coming out. We know there's a, a genetic thing called a secretor status, which is linked to your blood type as well. And that has all sorts of effects on your susceptibility to viruses and yeast infections. Uh, It has a big effect on the bacteria that grow inside of us. Mm -hmm. So it's an amazing amount of data that you can get by simply walking into a Red Cross and sticking your arm out and giving some blood. So it's a nice, and and it's just so utilizable. So I wrote that for your time. Yeah, it's a great book. And it's one of my favorite, you know, I ask everyone, what is your blood type? Oftentimes, just for you guys that are listening, it's okay if you don't know your blood type because a lot of people don't know. You're not checked often unless you give blood or unless you're pregnant and they check it, you know, when they're doing an RH factor. But um, a lot of people don't know. So it's okay to not know. So you can give blood or you can order self kits at home. You guys, your company right. sells them, Your right? doctor can um, test you. You can do a test that's available, yeah. FDA approved home test. So, I mean, but it's one of, of my favorite guiding tools. You know, if someone comes in and they say, hey, I've just started this vegan diet and I feel like crap and I find out they're typo, I think, well, maybe we should rethink the vegan diet. We might want to, and that was my story. I was, I'm an O, non-secreter, and I was a vegan for four or five years and I started to not feel so great after a while, you know, and I was eating a ton of grains and I was eating a lot of dairy. I guess I wasn't eating dairy because I was a vegan, but I did try dairy for a bit, but I didn't do so well. And when I started eating meat, when I came to naturopathic school, I read Eat Right for Your Type. I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should try adding that protein back in. And yeah, so I feel much better on a more paleo diet. I love what I love about it is it doesn't make any particular avenue of approach right or wrong. Yeah. It doesn't become right or wrong until you tell me the patient we're talking about, yeah. the person we're talking about. So that's what people yeah. say, well, you, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? So well, tell me who we're talking about. Totally. That's what's so amazing about, you know, more holistic medicine is that it's a more, it's an individualized approach. And yeah, so thank you for giving us the basics. If you guys haven't read Eat Right for Your Type, I highly recommend the read. It's great. And I think you can, your website also is a phenomenal resource of information and you've got recipes and um, there's an app too. I often recommend my patients get, I love the app where you can. Yeah. Go. There's a little iPhone app they can use. Yeah. yeah and, and, right uh, there's space. God, there's Facebook groups. You've got that Facebook are, groups. And I know. I have nothing to do with those, but you know, the interesting thing about the whole, uh, social media thing is, um, when I first wrote Eat Right for Your Type, there was, um, oh, this is even funnier story I'll start with. So, uh, my co-writer said, we should put a thing in the back of the book where people can order a home blood typing kit. So I said, well, I don't have a home blood typing kit. And she said, well, it's going to be six months before the book is published and you'll find one between now and then. Okay. <laughs> so they brought the public, the book is published. There's the thing for the home blood typing kit. And I start looking in my inbox and in my email and there's thousands of emails who want to know about the home blood typing kit, the home blood oh, typing yeah. kit. And I was like, I don't, ha- I don't have a home blood typing <laughs> kit. So finally, I see an email that says, how does this home blood typing kit compare to yours? And I oh. said, oh, I, I'm probably pretty good since I don't have one. <laughs> um, but it turned out that it was a company. It was a company in Denmark that made it Ah. because the German government passed a rule that said you cannot go into surgery until you are blood typed right at the table to make sure that they have your blood type. So this is the whole purpose this test was made. And of course, we actually got hold of this and made an arrangement with this company. And and it's a very simple home blood typing kit you can purchase for under 10 bucks. And it's very reliable. Finger prick, super easy. Finger prick and watch the. And it's interesting because you can observe on the test and agglutination, which is the exact yeah. same thing that occurs if you eat the wrong foods. 
Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, a really cool science experiment. It's to right do in front of you. So you know that that book was a very eye-opening type of uh, thing for me, as far as, for instance. Uh, it brought a concept uh, that was well ahead of its time because at the time there was no nutritional genomics. There was no 23andMe. There was none of those yeah. things. And here was this basic, very simple gene, very inexpensive with all these white consequences and things. And it, it was also just nice because I, in order to be able to assert my point, I didn't have to denigrate anybody else. And th this was really the nice part because if you ever watch, you get involved in any of these diet groups, everybody's like, you know, they're, Oh, don't do that. Don't do this. This is that. You know, veganism yeah. is caught up with animal rights, which has a place in this world. And paleo is caught up with agribusiness issues. That's what's got a point too. But the reality is that, you know, it's all about just trying to get something that works for you. And there's yeah. probably thousands of people who have left reports of their changes for the better on the website. We stopped collecting them years ago, but there's like 10,000 of these things. It's a good thing. And then basically, you know, it's always been part of how I practiced. And then uh, later on, we got involved in when our paths crossed, when I started you know, lecturing yep. at the University of Bridgeport, we started using more advanced software and stuff that we were writing and things. Yeah. A lot of aspects of naturopathic medicine that I think are still waiting to be experienced by the general public and also to to get inroads into conventional medicine but it's very difficult because you know we exist on the outskirts and they just don't know quite what to do with us it's it's yeah. kind of a we alluded to before you know it's it's not anything i mean it, it's not abnormal to spend an hour with a naturopath talking about stuff and there just isn't that kind of capacity in the world to yeah. do that in a medical yeah. system where you're you're built by the 10 minute increments. So, yeah, but I, and I do think more people are seeking out, I think, especially given what's happened this year, you know, everyone's invested in, you know, in their health. And I think people are, I find in my practice, people are searching, Oh, I want someone who thinks a little bit outside of the box. I want an endocrinologist who thinks a little bit differently about the numbers, or I want someone who's actually going to talk to me about my diet or listen to me about my diet or listen to me about the 15 things that, you know, that I've got going on that aren't normal or aren't, you know, the fact that my he, left he, toe is blue or whatever, you know, the, the weird uh, symptoms that we think that we think, but you know, here's, here's the reason why you want to, here's the reason why you want to see a naturopath and you all know this. It's great to think outside the box, but first you have to be able to know how to think inside the box. Yeah. And you know, you, when you work with a naturopath who graduated from a, a, an accredited four year school, you're talking with somebody who has a full fledged medical education yeah. who can talk com competently on both sides of the fence. And, yeah. and this is really where almost it becomes almost unfair competition because almost all the naturopaths I've ever trained or work with are just as good explaining to the patient what the drugs are that they're taking that were not explained oh, yeah. to them typically in their visit yes. Uh, yes. as they are telling them what they would do from our perspective. So yes. this is really where it becomes unfair because most people will go say, I'm seeing a naturopath. You put me on this. They, they go see an average conventional physician. They don't, they don't know what that stuff is. They don't, yeah. they, you know, and, and it's really odd because so much of it is yeah. reported in the same literature. We all read the same literature, except some people land yeah. on studies that other people don't. Yeah. Well, I think you bring up a good point there. I think one of the reasons, and maybe this has to go back to the time factor, is that, you know, I build into my time that I spend with the patients, I'm spending half the time teaching them about their body and about the drugs they're taking or about the drugs they used to take or about what their treatment plan, I'm teaching them what it's actually doing in their bodies. And I think that makes them feel more empowered. Whereas they, the doctor just hands you a drug, this is for your diabetes, and then they walk away and they don't understand what's actually happening inside their body it's not really a great thing for the, you know, for the mental part of the whole system. And it's just, it's not a great situation. 
Drugs are terrific if you have a short-term problem that yes. is what's called in medicine episodic. In other words, it yeah. comes, like it said in the Bible, it came to pass. You know, yeah. the, the reality is that you, like you have an infection or you have something yes. that's got a beginning, middle, and end. The problem is that in the last 20 to 30 years, medicine has lost its focus on treating the acute occurrences and has yes. focused pharmaceutically on treating chronic disease, which is much more... Uh, much more profitable. But yeah. the problem is that they haven't changed their paradigm. So they consider a chronic disease just an elongated version of an acute disease. Yeah. And the reality is that there's not a lot of things that occur in that kind of treatment other than symptom suppression. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that chronic disease is not necessarily, the symptoms are just a manifestation of the process. The process yeah. is the actual disease. And yeah. so when you look at it from that perspective, looking at it, this might be a little obtuse, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I'm it. feeling kind of obtuse today. There's a thing in medicine called an ontology. And an ontology is the aggregated structured knowledge. In other words, it's sort of like the network of how facts relate to each other. So if you can have an ontology of classic music that tells people what the relationships between a quarter note and a half note. In medicine, you have a structured ontology that has to do with genetics. And it, the best one is, is by a, a facility in Japan called KEGG. K -E -G -G. It's called KEGG Genomics. When they put together their ontology, they had to start at something very, very simple, which is where do you start? You know, like it says in the Bible on the first day, you know, so-and-so. Well, mm -hmm. how does an oncology and medicine start? It has to define what a disease is, mm -hmm. okay? Their definition of a disease is a perturbation of the molecular system. Mm -hmm. In other words, a disruption of the molecular system. The next thing they had to define was what was a drug. Their definition mm -hmm. of a drug was a perturbant of the molecular system. So you, ha you, you have, by definition, you're using a perturbant to treat a perturbation. So you're using a disruptor to treat disruption. This tells you essentially why that model is, is just so ill-fitted to chronic disease. It's like literally saying, you know, eight ball in the side pocket kind of thing. It's like, you know, we're going to whack this thing from the other direction and see if it goes towards the middle. But the yeah. reality is that the system, is, our systems are self-reparative. They actually yeah. put themselves back. You just got to get out of the way most of the time. Yeah, really. And that's, that's again, why you got to go back to the basics sometimes. Like we got to give your body, you need sunshine, you need water, you need sleep, <laughs> the right diet, and then the body will so do its many, thing. Yeah. So many things will sort themselves out if we can just figure out where the blockages are, where yep. things are not occurring that are supposed to occur. Uh, they could be social relationships. They can be... Lots yeah. of things will get in the way of you reaching your full health potential. Uh, oh, and sometimes you just have to, you just have to go through the checklist, ticking off boxes, but also time, you know, but that's the other thing too. We, before we actually started the, um, the podcast, we were talking a little bit and catching up with some, you know, Dr. Kinney was one of my first students when I took on a teaching position at the Bridgeport where she got her medical degree. Uh, we know we can go back a while and, <laughs> You know, we, we were talking a little bit about how, um, you know, just as you get older, you, you know, I'm, me especially, I just, I just like to just let things kind of unwind with most people. And the reason that I still am in practice, I do mostly a telemedicine-based practice now, is because I have patients I've known for 40 years in the course mm -hmm. of my practice, and I just don't feel comfortable letting go of them. But when you know somebody for 30 years, you know a lot about yeah. how they process and what they go through. And you know a lot about their family situations and their 
lifestyle and their finances and all sorts of things. And, you know, you can go in lots of different directions to actually assist those people to help them out. It doesn't Mm -hmm. always have to be with a vitamin or a drug or whatever. Sometimes it's a little piece of friendly advice or some time to just sit there listening to them try to get some stuff out that they need to get, you know, they need to vent. There's a lot to medicine that you can't put in a bottle. Yeah. Well, I seem to also remember you a lot in the classes you taught talking about how medicine is more of an art. It's not, here's patient, patient has X, here's treatment protocol for X. And I think that sometimes is what happens is people get the same protocol over and over and over again. But really, there's an art form to the person. And it might not be. And I always tell this to my patients. I get patients that come in. They're like, the diet that used to work for me isn't working anymore. And well, you know, you're in menopause now. We're in a different phase of life. You know, that that diet that worked before might not really work now. Or, you know, the supplement protocol that worked now. I mean, you're... Your body is changing just as you're different. From everything, else. everything. The only thing that's consistent is change itself, right? The reality is that people change, thoughts change, knowledge evolves, things get better. I'm now in my sixth decade. I've been practicing for 30 years and, and I am still amazed by the power of the simplicity of what it is that we do and the capacity. Listen, you know, the word patient is comes from the Latin word to suffer. You know, so ultimately there's, there's suffering and, and people die. But, you know, I have spent the last part of my career isolating out ways of being able to augment people's cancer care so that as they get treated for cancer with conventional medicine, what are the things we can do alongside that so as to shift the odds even better in their favor? Yeah. And, there and that their quality so of life wonderful. is much better, right? I mean, I think you're and probably... Survival proven. statistics are much better because, I mean, yeah. if you look at, you know, we have numbers on everything. So you can look up your cancer and you find it's got a 7% survival rate, yep. a 20% survival rate. Well, I've always thought that that was kind of sad numbers, but somebody had to be in that 7%. And I, I want one of my yeah. patients to be in that 7%. So yeah. what, what I like to do about that is to work with the natural processes that are just completely ignored. When you, when you mm-hmm. are put on chemotherapy, it's just, it's just a kill zone kind of thing, but mm-hmm. there's, what's the reparative part of that? What's the aftermath of that? that that's yeah. really oftentimes where the outcomes are determined you know, people can survive chemotherapy, but why does it come back in some people? Well, because yeah. somebody forgot to look at that part of the equation. This yeah. has actually been occupying me a lot. And I think naturopathic medicine really can offer a lot to chronic diseases like oh, Alzheimer's yeah. and cancer and diabetes that really represent a kind of a, a high value way of approaching it from a molecular standpoint. You know, Dr. Kinney and I know well, she's well aware of the stuff that we do with bioinformatics and genomic analysis and things beyond the scope of our little talk here. But the reality is that there's so many things that can go into making a very high quality assessment of the patient. And then there's the simple stuff. Yes. Yes. There's there's the there's the molecular wizardry and then there's the just country doctor simple stuff. But I think sometimes the bait and I was talking to a colleague the other day, we were talking about just the fact that taking a good history. And again, we have the time to sit down and take a really thorough history. Tell me about your job. Tell me about your work. Tell me about your stress. And it's other than what's going on in the physical body, what else is going on in the world? I think that helps you figure out what the basics need to be for that person. And teach. I mean, you know, yeah, and teach. You, yep. you, you really, if you're an naturopath, you're, you're, you take that whole dosore thing, you know, yep. sorry is the Latin for, you know, teacher. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but I just love telling 
metaphors and parables that I've oh, collected yeah. over the years that just get a point across. Because if the patient, if the patient understands it from an intuitive standpoint, in other words, there's something about how the point was communicated that resonates very deeply with them, they can yes. align themselves to the action and influence oh, the outcome. Totally. And that's what most of you guys are listening who may or may not be patient minds or follow myself. I like to put things in very, I like to tell people how the body works in parables or, you know, say, you know, think about it like this, your body's a house. And I like, so you can understand and walk away and you know exactly, okay, my immune system is doing this. It's just as if this were happening, you know, so it's a, they walk away knowing, and just as you said, they're more likely to make the changes or you're more likely to make the changes if you know what's going they're, on. And, and, and they're, they're, you know, it's all about, really, the, we, we can only set the stage for somebody who has to actually, you know, they have to leave and do the work. Yeah, so exactly. we have we have to be able to make sure that that person understands that our decisions were arrived at, you know, in a, in a sense of open-mindedness and fairness and from the perspective of what was best for that patient. You know, it's amazing that they, they have um, many, many uh, polls that have been done with conventional medicine. And this is not to disparage conventional medicine, although as, a, as an edifice, it, it's, it's worthy of disparagement sometimes. But the individuals are not. Yeah. But the, they find it again and again, for instance, oftentimes uh, practitioners of conventional medicine will tell people to do things they wouldn't do themselves. And the classic example is, for instance, vitamin C. They did a poll of medical internists and found that some ridiculously high number of medical internists take vitamin C when they have a cold. But then they asked them, well, do you recommend that to your patients? And the answer was almost uniformly no. Mm -hmm. So here's a dichotomy that you're doing something, you know enough about something to do it yourself, but the culture that you belong to inhibits you from making, making that, crossing mm -hmm. that over and, and helping somebody learn by your own experience how you walk the walk yeah. you know, and talk yeah. the talk. That's a good example. I think I think that's true. I, it's funny. I treat a lot of nurses and I treat a lot of friends that are medical doctors and they come in and they're like, tell me what to do. And, you know, and I know they're taking supplements. I'm like, would you recommend this to your patients? Well, no, it's not really in our, it's not really, it's not in the protocol. You know, it's not in this standard stuff. So I think it's just, they're a little too in the box. Whereas you go to a naturopath and you're going to get, get outside of the box thinking. You know, it's interesting because most naturopaths always make the inevitable choice. You know, do I do the ND thing or do I do the MD thing? Mm -hmm. And making the ND thing, my daughter is now in her third year of oh, school. That's right. Yeah. That's so great. Uh, and, and a part of me is like, oh, you know, are you sure you're going to be strong enough emotionally to handle this? Because you really have to deal with a lot of yeah. ignorance. Yeah. Um, and people who are threatened by, by what perhaps yeah. maybe they see in you or misapprehensions. How many people yeah. think, you know, that Dr. Kinney and I wear grass skirts and blow smoke on people? But we might. You know, the <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, 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 the reality is, is that, uh, you know, you look at it from the perspective of uh, the hamstring nature of conventional medicine. It's you, you really, I, when I practiced in, well, medicine is actually kind of a weird conglomerate because if you mm -hmm. practice in San Francisco and you're a medical doctor, you can say almost anything. But if you practice mm -hmm. in Greenwich, Connecticut, where they have more lawyers per capita than anywhere else in the country, you better do exactly what the County Medical Association. So yeah. I remember talking to a, a guy in a headache clinic and saying, you familiar with the literature on fever few for migraines? Oh, absolutely. Very exciting. Were you going to recommend it? Nope. Can't recommend it because I'll face consequences. So mm -hmm. I always tell my patients, you have a point of the diploma on the wall behind me in the office. You see that piece of paper? I say, well, that entitles me to be crazy. <laughs> it entitles me to basically think for myself for yeah. you. 
You know, yeah. when we yeah. when we get together, you're hiring me to think about you, to think, yeah. to bring what I have, my experience and knowledge, good or bad, biases and all. But yeah. you're hiring me to to give my best effort to try and figure out what the heck is wrong with you and how do we do yeah. something about it. Well, that's usually why people end up in our office is because they've seen all the other doctors and they can't, yeah. you know, they, they still don't feel good. And they're like, well, we talked I'm about I'm that maybe- too. Yeah, I mean, I had a I had a whole slew of patients my first couple of years in practice that I used homeopathics with, and they they were astounded at their results, and they called me the witch doctor in a loving way. Yeah. I'm going to go see the witch doctor. She, she helped me with these homeopathic remedies, and I felt a little odd about it, but then I was like, well, they're coming in, and I'm helping them, so they can call me whatever it's they want to call term, me. A term of in, a term of endearment. It, it was know? a term of endearment. Yeah, yeah. So, well, thank uh, you so uh, much yeah. for your comments and everything. And is there anything else you want to share? Where? If someone is interested in learning more, is the best place to do sure. an email list? Go, go yeah. to, go to uh, www.dadamo.com. Uh, my last name, minus the apostrophe, D-A-D-A-M-O.com. Great website. Awesome. Uh, there's If you just put an Eat Right for your type in Facebook, you'll find oodles of various groups, of groups. that are usually moderated by patients of mine who actually have been yes. helped by this and more yeah. or less try to pay back a little bit of something. You know, ultimately... Uh, it's been a pleasure and, you know, I'm so proud yeah. of, of uh, Dr. Kenny and how she's oh, uh, built her professional career. And I mean, little known fact is I, you know, when I first went to UB, I think there were some classes, they, they sort of pushed the higher ranked students towards me because my, my shifts were considered somewhat demanding. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah uh, they were demanding. <laughs> now, Dr. Kenny was always uh, at the top of, of the oh, heap. I mean, just one smart cookie. So um, thank you for having me. And it's good catching up with you. Yeah, it was great catching up. And we'll hopefully have you on again soon. Thank you. Good luck with the the VW bug. And I need to get back to that. (laughs) Get back to your fashion. (laughs) Take care now. Thank you, Peter. All right, bye. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Dr. Kinney Show. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and a review. It supports the show. Plus, I always love hearing from you guys. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next week.